Welcome, everybody. You're listening to News of the Money World. I'm really excited to be here. I really am. And Rupert, you look really pleased as punch as well. Thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure. I'm absolutely stoked to be here. It's a great afternoon. And um, to be honest, it's much, much nicer out here chatting to you than writing blogs in my office. Yeah, that's good. Well, you can do both if we're quick, right? There, but yeah, it's kind of hard, right? Because there's just too much freaking information going on right now. Like there's so much stuff going on, so many interesting stories. Shall we start uh, with New Zealand though? Yeah, it's a great place to start. Yeah. So normally, I, and I, I hopefully, hopefully I come across as completely un, unbiased every time I talk to you, but it's been really hard to kind of be positive about what's been happening with a lot of government policies over the last few years, just because yep. of my inherent biases that are hard to wash <laughs> away. But what, what I've been seeing recently is, is good. I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. The people I speak to are feeling a little bit more upbeat. So from an, a sentiment point of view, I think the coalition agreement that was announced recently has been really helpful to restore confidence in the market. And right down at the household level, people are finding it perhaps a little bit more, I guess, more, it's easier just to plan ahead, right? And I think at a yep. business la layer, it's probably easier to think about staff and expanding production, other markets taking ground. It's all about certainty. Where are interest rates going to go? Will the policies be changed? And in what flavor will the change occur? So it's been really nice to see that kind of get tidied up and rebuilding the economy, reducing wasteful spending, reducing wasteful regulation, which is massive, and dealing better to inflation. Uh, and ending race-based policies. Like these are some of the things that, that I know are kind of the main sort of themes, but let's kind of go through that maybe one yeah. by one. And um, from just from a basic economics level, the, obviously a, a government from the left, a government from the right is gonna have a different style in terms of how they set policy and how they manage the economy. So from, from a, just a, like a political lens, first and foremost, without kind of being too biased, which is impossible, I know, your views in general about the direction that New Zealand is potentially pointing, not necessarily heading, but pointing. Um, I, I'm probably not quite as confident as you. I think um, we, my natural bias coming through on that one. Um, we look, New Zealand's clearly about to go through some really tough times. Um, I think that the government's come out, they've got strong intent, they want to redesign the economy, they want to make sure that we, we focus on how do we grow, how do we turn ourselves back into a first world country. Uh, and that, that's great. I, I just really hope that the, the follow through is there. Uh, for my liking, the coalition agreements probably focused far too much on race-based policies and all of that kind of stuff, which completely misses the point. That's a nice distraction away from, hold on a sec, it's all about productivity. And actually, the end of the day, one of the things that I found most fascinating what's come out over the last few days is that the smoke, repealing the smoke-free legislation, it appears as though one of the key reasons that has been done is so that they can save a billion dollars to fund some of the tax cuts. And so that to me shows I'm not 100% confident in, in the priorities if that's what we are needing to do. But if anything, it also shows what an absolute dire state New Zealand is in. We're a middle tax country. We've got massive spending cuts that are on the way. We're probably about to go through austerity. Um, and yet we still can't kind of seem to afford that government spending. So, yeah, I, I think if anything, what this coalition agreement is showing me is um, the New Zealand kind of public purse and, and how we think about productivity is it's, needs a complete rethink. Yeah. Well, I guess if there was a government that, 
could in theory at least be capable of doing it it's probably more likely to be the one that we currently have right not to give them too much credit like you say you know we haven't really seen a lot of output yet to judge them on but at least from an idealistic point of view and, and where their values are we'd like to assume that they would believe that business can help lift us up and that hey, if you want productivity it's about getting more with less and a hundred percent and I think that's what that's that's been very clear, right? I, I actually like the idea of a minister for regulation. I like yeah. the idea of a, a lot of those things. And so, yes, you, you would hope so. But yeah. at the same time, um, I also hope that it's not just a case of throwing stuff in the rubbish bin for the sake of throwing stuff in the rubbish bin, right? With yeah. some of the legislation which they've talked about pulling back, whether that be uh, the environmental legislation, the water safety legislation, there's a whole lot of things that, look, we know need fixing. We know we've got massive issues. Um, and it feels as though, I mean, even arguably the Resource Management Act, arguably we're just throwing them in the bin because they're labour policies, whereas I don't think we've thought through kind of actually what right. is the right piece. And so that's, that's my only kind of concern is yeah. actually there's a throwing in the bin for throwing in the bin sake versus actually um, how do we make sure that we're still uh, making this world and protecting this world for, for what our kids want to grow up in, right? Because that's an important point. Okay. All right. Well, shifting over more on, on the investment side then, yeah. looking, at, looking at the coalition agreement again through that lens, thinking about the housing market, which is near and dear to our hearts if we yep. own a property. Uh, this, I think, is quite interesting because They've come out of the gate guns blazing in terms of what they're going to do. Bright line test, which is effectively capital gains tax yeah. for um, for property investors. That's going to be shortened down to two years. Uh, we have the return of interest deductibility. We have um, reforms potentially being hinted at with the triple CFA. And these are all kind of like the things on the, the government side or even like the fiscal side, you could say, that have really put a handbrake on money flowing into the housing sector, which putting the fact that, yeah, it, it might make us feel something that house prices go up, that, that feels really unfair, but it does actually create more houses. And so I guess with that changing, with the fact that maybe interest rates, and this is on the monetary side, interest rates might be coming down maybe a little bit next year, then we have this easing up going on, which will restore the incentive structures for developers to get in there and build houses, hopefully with the with better economics. So again, from a from a, I guess maybe this is a little bit political still as well, but the, the idea is, is that incentivize people to do it rather than punish people against doing a wrong type of it, right? Like we don't want people to speculate, but at the same time, we still need new houses. What's your general view around housing as a result of this? Uh, look, I think um, my view is housing has to go nuts again, to be perfectly honest. Um, so you've got three things. You've got interest deductibility. That is going to be massive for investors. Um, you've got uh, bright line tests. I, I don't know how much of a, a difference that made to people. Um, if anything, bright line tests, you could see extra supply on the market uh, because people have been too scared to sell to avoid those capital gains. Same. But look, yeah. 110,000 people moving into New Zealand every year. Um, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, right? 110,000 people coming in. Uh, we're only building 30,000 new houses uh, and we've got about 100,000 house shortfall. So to my mind, um, house prices uh, will go up. There's no question on it. Um, and the, also the third, the fourth big one is the prospect of interest rates coming down next year. In the mm. last week, well, sorry, in the last three weeks, we've already seen those kind of two and five year uh, interest rates drop by about kind of 50 to 75 basis points. 
theoretically, that should come through. That should start flowing through to the mortgage rate soon. Um, and so we're starting to get a pretty clear sign of, of what's going to happen in that space. But yeah, I I fear um, we have 2021 all over again uh, coming at us. Yeah, it's possible, right? It's possible. It, it does feel like, and I was talking to somebody earlier on today around this from the point of view of just investor sentiment. It yep. kind of feels like that there was, like there was a really loaded gun in our hands for a while before we learned how to shoot it in yep. in 2020 really and that kind of led to massive firing uh, and they weren't blanks in 2021 and then <laughs> things went things went berserk right so we now are are again loading up this gun again and but the memory the recency bias this myopic i guess tendency that we have to re return back to previous behaviors and expectations can be reignited right like that, that yeah. greed can be set off in an instant. And I still kind of feel like it, it's there. It hasn't been flushed out. We haven't gone through, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we haven't gone through enough pain yet no. in, in order to flush that away. I know a lot of households have been struggling. Uh, I can see that and, and savings have been depleted, but there are still fewer and fewer who have much, much, much more. And I, I feel like they're the ones that are potentially out there right now, scooping up the assets at the first sign of optimism. Um, yeah, I 100% I, I agree with that. I, I think there is a is a big, strong portion of optimistic people out there that, that are having a go. And, and look, let, let's be honest, housing, as much as what we, we talk about a downturn, prices today are still higher than where they were in, um, in mid-2021. So it, it's realistically, it's, it's unfortunately, it's the first home buyers that have bought over the last kind of 18 months that have lost out. Um, yeah. And even that, some of that's kind of starting to recover through. So uh, I personally don't think the housing market has seen much pain yet. Um, and mm -hmm. I just don't really see that it's going to happen. The, the problem with that, coming back to our productivity conversation, is that it means um, everyone's going to continue to just go back to, well, actually, the safest, easiest, best place to put money, property. Um, and so we yeah. kind of get back into the housing conversation versus how do we invest in productive assets and how do we actually improve the productivity of the country as a whole. Okay. There's one, there's one thing on that though. And this is something that uh, I think is really important to point out because mm. it often gets missed. If you were earning $100,000 a year in 2019, you'd have to be earning, I don't know what the exact number is, somewhere between one thirty dollars to $140,000 per year today just yep. to offset the impact of inflation, right? So when we're thinking about house it's prices back at that level. yeah we're talking about nominal levels adjusted for inflation probably has still we, we've seen a lot of, of pullback and so there i guess there is a lot of rebound to just offset the inflationary impacts before we start getting into the real rate of return um but that's just something that i guess that is almost irrelevant if you're the investor because you are kind of looking at the property value and the mortgage value which doesn't get adjusted for inflation that's the great exactly. thing about property investment is that during these times you have a catch-up from the inflation bit and then you have the gain and i think that's why it's it is quite an optimistic i think it's quite an optimistic vibe that i'm trying to send out anyway to the uh, to the property investor universe out there i think it's looking good Oh, look, property market has, has always done supply and demand. 
And I think what we've seen is we've seen what well, we've we've got massive demand and we've got some easing on the supply and probably the supply side nothing much has changed and so that's yeah. why rents are, I think rents will go up which that'll be the thing that drives probably investors back to the market more than anything um, yeah. as as we see um, those rents kind of increase because yeah 110,000 people coming into Auckland uh, they need yeah. somewhere to live yeah yeah and I can't remember what the stats were like how many people fit in a house, whether it's like 2.4 or three or whatever the average is. I think it's about, on average, it's about, um, it's, it, across the world, I think it's 40 houses or so between 35 and 40 houses per 100 po head sure. of population. There you go. So it's okay. kind of somewhere in that two and a half to three number. Okay. Yeah. Interesting, eh? So time will tell, right? And oh, exactly. meanwhile, yeah, like obviously a big part of this is interest rates, right? And like, like you alluded to before, interest rates are relatively high. We have an OCR or an official cash rate here in New Zealand of 5.5%. Yeah. That's likely, hopefully, going to come next year, subject to the inflation data, subject to em employment data as well. That will dictate how fast and how far the interest rates fall. But that's going to create a lot more um, buying impulse. That, I guess that kind of sets the distance as far as how high the prices might go if it does get set off again. But then we still have to consider how the banking structure works as well. And that leads us to, the, I guess, the discussion of wholesale rates because we're seeing that kind of um, go up and down a little bit like a yo-yo at the moment. One bank seems to be raising, the other one seems to be dropping. Do you have any perspective or insight around why that's going on right now? I find that really interesting, right? Because I think increasingly the banks have become uh, or banks forecasts are all now saying whether it be Q2, Q3 next year, they expect interest rates to start falling. Um, the prospects of a further rate rise either in December um, or in February are now gone. Yeah. And so what we've seen is we've seen wholesale interest rates fall. And wholesale, they have been bouncing around a bit, um, but they've fallen kind of anywhere between 50 to 75 points. So mm. all things being equal, what that means is actually mortgage rates should have come down by about 50 to 75 basis points. Mm. Um, and that's kind of on the two-year and on the five-year. And so mm. that's where I'm kind of struggling a little bit. So where I see, haven't seen the mortgage rates come down, despite the fact that we've got a, a very, very different OCR trajectory. Uh, we have seen consistently lower wholesale rates um, over the last couple of weeks. And yeah, I, I am kind of a little bit struggling to understand why they haven't come, come down. Um, as fast mm. as, as we would expect, right? The yeah. banks might be sitting there waiting and going, hold on a sec, we've seen this fake a few times before um, yeah. and we're just going to kind of wait, we'll see it through till after Christmas and if interest rates are still low at that point, then we'll drop rates. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's, uh, that feels a little bit like a, a some price gouging that's happening too as well because if they're issuing five-year mortgages today at the same price as when they were issuing them a month ago, it's costing them 75 basis points less uh, to yeah. fund it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so there, there are a few things in there that probably do need to be looked at. Mm, okay. So you're kind of alluding to the fact that hey, it's, it's a little bit like an oligopoly or a cartel or there's a little uh, bit of price yeah. going on. Yeah, look, I'm pretty uh, more than happy to go on the record on my view on the banks. Um, I think the banks are, I think it's a, it's an Australian tax on New Zealand with the banks. Um, the New Zealand banks have the highest return on equity in the world. Um, they have an amazing lobby group, though. Whenever anyone starts to have a go at the banks and they say, oh, but you've got to realise we're $100 billion of equity, of assets, and we only earn 2% return on assets, who cares? No one has ever measured a bank by return on assets. 
return on equity is the only number that matters. Um, and they earn one or two percentage points higher than their Australian peers and two or three percentage points higher than the global average. Um, And that's because a lot of the things that they do. And so I think, actually, I think if we're coming back to the productivity conversation around the election, I hope that the Commerce Commission, uh, with their investigation into the banking sector, are able to have a look at that um, and start to ask a whole lot of questions around, well, actually, why are these banks so profitable? And are we comfortable with that level of profitability? In the past, the answer has always been, we would much prefer a banking sector that is too profitable than a banking sector that is not profitable enough. Um, But to be honest, that's the easy, lazy answer. Um, Banks need to fail. We need to be prepared for bank failure. Um, And that's the honest truth, right? The, The US have had 500 bank failures since the global financial crisis, yet they've also got one of the strongest financial systems in the world. Um, why is it that we are unprepared to kind of countenance bank failure? Um, and we, so we'd much rather they be far too profitable. Okay. I feel like I need to have some opinions around this, but I don't. <laughs> Sorry. I'm probably overly opinionated on it. Yeah. I'm going to try and go get some opinions that are different just to spice it up next time. Yeah. Um, I, no, I would love to have that debate. So if you can find yeah, someone yeah. For, your, uh, for your Monday shows that uh, is willing to have the debate on, why yeah. we're better off having overly profitable banks or why the yeah. bank profits are reasonable. Yeah. I'd love to take the okay. other side of that. All right, game on. I'll try and find someone. <laughs> um, if there's anyone listening who wants to take on Rupert, I'll, I'll gladly mediate that fight. Um, <laughs> so, but actually going going back, actually even to the start of our conversation though, this now kind yep. of makes a little bit more sense. I, I think one of the, the frustrations that you probably expressed at the start around where's the money going to come from, right? Yep. Like in terms of the government. So with these, how do, how do we fund these tax cuts? What are we going to pull back? And are we going to pull back the things that are actually really important? And are we going to go backwards as a result? Um, I wonder if we do also need to remember in the context of debt, like what we were just talking about, do we need to remember that governments can borrow? And yep. they will, is my suspicion. They, they will borrow and they possibly yep. will borrow more than what they have in the past. And like they have two levers of pull, right? Like they can either tap the household for a portion of the pro- the profit, right? Like if, if people as a community are we're making some money, we're going to give some back in tax after our expenses. Yep. Um, but failing that, they're just going to effectively print money or borrow. And yep. it's going to create more inflation, yes, which is another form of taxation in my view. But they're going to get their pound of flesh to get done what they're going to get done. Are we kind of conditioned to think that now, our debt level is already maxed out. Do you think it is possible that we could actually see much higher levels of government debt in the next, you know, say three three to six years? Yeah, I do, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that um, I think that New Zealand with with our kind of look for for a long time the political consensus in New Zealand is that we needed to have a low level of debt around thirty percent of GDP for net debt to, to GDP. Um, mm. That compares to most other OECD countries, which are anywhere between probably kind of 50 to 80% is where they are all comfortable. Um, there are a lot of outliers that are much higher than that. Yeah. And again, I think the, the argument has always been New Zealand is a small country where we're at, at risk of natural disaster, all of those kind of things, which is why we need to have a lower level of debt. Um, I, I think we do need to debate that thinking and we probably do need to challenge that. However, we need to be smart about how we're doing it, right? Like you, like how we run our households and like how we run our businesses. Um, we are happy to take on debt to fund growth. 
and that means in government terms that means infrastructure yeah. so if we're going to kind of max out the credit card to put in a light rail to put in a new motorway to put in a new harbour bridge I got no issues with that, right? Because those are all things and assets that we're going to live and benefit from for the next hundred years. Mm. Um, as much as we all hate or we talk very negatively around the Muldoon era, actually, most of the infrastructure that we have in New Zealand was built by him. Yeah. Um, and through that period, right, whether it be the hydro schemes, a lot of the, the railways, the roading, and no one's ever touched anything ever since. I do have a massive issue. We're running a 7 8% debt to GDP, I mean, sorry, um, 7 to 8% financial deficit where we're not spending any money on infrastructure. Yeah, that's right. Um, totally. So, so if we so kind of said to ourselves, hey, look, we're happy to spend 90%, 85%, 90% um, of our kind of core government spending went to, or tax revenue, sorry, went to funding public services. I think that's a, it's a great answer. That includes the maintenance component of the assets that we have. Mm -hmm. And then we're happy to go anywhere from 5 to 25% is going to be spent on big infrastructure projects. Um, I think that or that makes more sense to me. Mm. Whereas in New Zealand, where we've gone over the last three or four years is we've kind of, we've at, at the best of times, uh, we are still printing quite hefty deficits um, and we're not really building any of the infrastructure that we need either. So we're kind of in the worst of all worlds. Yeah, we need Sorry, to think to be negative. No, that's that's cool. We need to think big again, though, is what you're saying. A hard out. We've got to think yeah. big. We've got to be brave, and we've got to acknowledge what is investment for the future versus mm. uh, what is just surviving. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think when you go through the list of what's being spent today, most of it is just surviving. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's good debt and there's bad debt within the household, right? Like you can spend yep. money on a trip overseas and an, a new car, which depreciates in value or is gone the next week. Yep. Or you could spend money on doing something that adds value to your home, or you can put money into your business, which grows and, and multiplies and produces something in the future. And that's kind of like how we need to think as a country. Oh, massive, right? And that's quite, where it's quite interesting, right? And that's why I'm very curious to see where this government goes. I mean, I, I hope they manage to sort it out, and I hope they win. Um, it's interesting, though. You saw over the last couple of days in the UK, Rishi Sunak has come out with some tax cuts, and all of a sudden the economists are talking about um, austerity yeah and austerity went from austerity back in 2009 10 was the best thing that because that's all of europe went through five to ten years of austerity and to be fair it crushed their economies for the better part of 10 years um yeah. and so economists now are going no 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 don't do it would probably rather you have you would probably rather that you ran deficits uh then you push us back into an austerity world yeah right just change what you're spending the money on is that exactly is that yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe people have to pay slightly high taxes, yeah. um, and that—that's the bit that's kind of a real challenge, right? It's also yeah. why productivity growth is where it has to happen because if you can't get wage growth, you can't mm. get product, you can't get wage growth, you can't get productivity growth, then mm. the debt at debt that's needed—sorry, not the debt—the the expenditure that's needed just to pay the police force, pay teachers, pay nurses, pay for social welfare. That number just keeps on growing massively every single year, yeah. um, and so we kind of it's just we're just hamsters spinning on a wheel. Yeah, but I guess this is and this is an interesting thing. Um, sorry to labor this point, but I think this is kind of well, it is kind of key, especially in the context of maybe borrowing more as a nation rather than just taxing and reducing spending as the only two levers, taxing more yeah. or spending less to kind of create that surplus that you would then spend on on, on infrastructure. 
the borrowing piece just really makes a lot of sense to me personally when I zoom out even further outside of New Zealand and I consider the worldwide dynamics and shifts that are happening, especially when you overlay technology into that. Yes, technology is ultimately deflationary, which means that that can absorb an equal and opposite inflationary force, which is kind of what would happen if the government decided to print too much and or borrow kind of the same thing. If that happened and they wanted to spend that on infrastructure, we're effectively paying for it through the future value that's unlocked with technological un, um, what's the word? Technological um, advancements. Thank yeah. you very much. So these technological advances, it unlocks value, which gets soaked up through the financial system, which creates justification for governments to borrow more, even though interest rates stay high, which keeps inflation at a, lit, a, a, a capped. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, but it's, it's actually, I think you're right that you can borrow and deflation means that and productivity means that you can borrow without causing that. And that's what AI does. The yeah, scariest yeah. part about it though, easiest way to get yourself out of debt, inflate your way out of it. Yeah, no. um, and so productivity gains, AI gains, if it does lead to deflation or it puts a yeah. halt on inflation, that also creates a massive problem for governments. I mean, like the worst it almost, thing is um, it, it almost need it almost requires war to fix that, doesn't it, Rupert? To be really controversial. Uh, well, war war will create a massive cost base, right? So you think about what happened coming out of uh, 1945, and and arguably out of the Vietnam War as well, where you ended up with governments coming out of that with massive, massive, massive um, debt balloons, massive deficits, and actually what got them through it was productivity. Uh, what what the war did do is it drove massive, massive innovation and yeah. massive amounts of technological advancement. Yeah. And I guess that's that's the question right now is, are we gonna get war-like productivity growth um, outside of war? Maybe, all these things are correlated, not necessarily causal, but it's, it's fascinating to kind of look at that in connection. So speaking of war, let's keep this moving. We've, we've, yeah. We could wrap this up real soon <laughs> here. So let's maybe just finish up on, um, do you wanna give us a, a, like a bit of a running commentary around where Binance is at, because the last couple of weeks has been phenomenal watching um, Binance basically just get nailed. So do you want to give us a bit of a, a commentary and, and also an update? Yeah, so Binance, um, the Department of Justice came to an agreement with Binance whereby uh, for basically evading money laundering rules. Um, apparently, according to text messages and, and uh, emails, it was widely known within Binance that none of the normal rules were being applied. They knew that people were using the site for money laundering um, and the Department of Justice finally caught up with them. Yeah. Uh, so I think they gave them, a, what was it, a $3 billion fine yeah, um, to to Binance itself. Um, but what I find probably more interesting and is they actually made CZ, they've gone after him personally as well. So he has had to pay a $50 million fine um, on his own. Um, he has accepted wrongdoing. He has had to step down from um, his position as CEO of Binance. But what's even scarier, or not scary is the wrong word, but most, most surprising, it looks as though he's going to go to jail. For real, yeah. Yeah, like it looks as though, I mean, even the plea agreement, it's, it said, um, and he won't appeal if his sentence is less than 18 months. Um, 
which to me suggests the sentence is going to be 18 months. But, yeah, it's kind of a massive about-face. And then even today you saw uh, the judge in the case has turned around and said, actually, sorry, mate, you're not going to be allowed to leave and go back to Dubai. Yeah. You need to stay here in the US um, until you're sentencing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty massive fall from grace, right, where you've now got yeah. uh, a guy who's worth anywhere from, well, $20 billion. The fact that he can hand over a $4 billion fine, I'm not sure what the difference is between a $4 billion fine to Binance and a $50 million fine for him personally, given he owns a whole of Binance. Yeah, I think yeah. it's the same thing. But, um, yeah, yeah it's, I find it fascinating, yeah. right? It's the first yeah. time that we've got, we're going to have a business person in jail uh, for a business that hasn't failed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's also, I guess, yeah, like where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about this whole story is that it's just another story in that long book of regulation by enforcement, which we've yep. learned this year, that because it's such a new, fast evolving thing, you're going to get slapped on the wrist when you've done something wrong. Um, even though you didn't know what the rules were, um, you're guilty until proven innocent. And by the way, there is no version of innocent either, either way. So you're screwed, right? But what I think is really ironic about this is that this, and you'll probably have some views on this, and that's why I saved it right to the very end so that there's no time for you to comment. But my views around this is that I just think it's too ironic that when the US Federal Reserve System was created, I think it was in 1913, it was effectively created by a bunch of bankers, right? Yeah. Um, they didn't have to endure regulation by enforcement from an outside party that wasn't connected to their industry. It was the actual industry players. And so my view is that if we're going to have regulation for the digital asset ecosystem, it has to come from the most respected people within the system. And that's exactly who they're going after. And I'm not suggesting that CZ was perfect by no means. Uh, however, people did kind of look up to him. Um, and before you get into comparisons with SBF, I know he's going to be spooning him soon in prison, but you know, there is, there is that part of it, right? Like I know no one's perfect, but if someone's going to define what the regulation and the rules should be, shouldn't it be those that are actually already successful and operating well within the crypto ecosystem? Uh, and that's all we have time for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You and I have differed on this for a long time, Darcy. Um, yeah. I, I look, I, I, I'll say what I've said the whole way through. I, I personally think we've got a great set of rules and regulations that we can easily apply to crypto. AML and money laundering, which is what this was all about. Yeah, to me, that's, that's fairly clear cut. Um, yeah. I, I think that it is what it is. Uh, protecting investors and, again, slightly different views, libertarian versus um, Grayland socialist. Um, that probably, to me, protecting investors is very important and there's a lot of legislation for doing all of that stuff. There is a whole lot of other stuff around how you issue securities and how you do that that I do agree sits in the digital ecosystem. Um, mm. But I think when you look at the... When you look at some of the text messages and some of the stuff that was going on in Binance um, and even some of the stuff that you read about Hamas and how they were, that was kind of Binance was one of its favorite tools for moving money around. Yeah, it's pretty hard to see kind of how some of the stuff yeah. doesn't go. I, I will yeah. say there is a middle ground though, right? But at the end of the day, number one rule in finance, you've got to follow the AML rules. Um, yes. You've got to stop money laundering. And you've got to protect investors and people have got to get what they sign up for. 
And yeah. as long as we kind of do those three things, I don't really care who makes the rules. Um, yeah. It's just we've got to kind of have those as our three core principles. That's good. Yeah, good, good, good response. Awesome. Well, I'm going to give you one final comment though, because you will like this one. Okay. What I find amazing is how US entities never get done by all of these rules either. So how is it that SBF has not been done yet for money laundering and all of the other stuff that we know he was doing? Did, to me, there is also, and we saw this in the early 2010s, when all of the European banks got massive fines and got massively done for not complying with US anti-money laundering rules. Um, and I think, yeah, it'd be quite scary right now owning a, a crypto exchange and not being American yeah. uh, because yeah. I fear that this is, this is another form of protectionism from the Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting insight, isn't it? As to why a lot of the world is now trying to push back against that system. Yeah. You can kind of understand it, right? I'm not saying picking sides, but you can kind of understand it at the very least. Yeah. Wow. Man, we got a lot done. We got a lot done. What a good, what a good chat. And um, next week, we still have plenty more to get through. Oh, and next week, we got a lot. We got an end of month. We, we're going to talk about the, the boil up. There we go. The boil up. The, the boil up of markets up 8% up. this month. It's going it. to be a huge amount cool. to go through. All right, Rupert, thank you for your time. And uh, we'll catch you next week.